Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everyone and welcome to another Tuesday morning with the IRR show. Um, Joburg is lovely, sunny and cold. Mine, uh, the minimums are three, the maximum is 16, which contrasts to Matula, as you've just heard, from 28 minimum to 41 maximum. It's almost incomprehensible. Um, but if you think it's cold, wait till the, later this week. It's going to become freezing. Um, a couple of little bits and pieces that sort of popped up for the first part of the, for the first 10 minutes of the show. And this one particularly caught my eye because I know the debate on this has been huge and we'll get to last week very soon because it's going to take up the rest of the show. A pulmonologist at one of the net care centers has said that of the, the two of, the, of three patients he has seen have taken ivermectin and he has, sees, he says it has absolutely no benefit. Now there's been a lot of uh, controversy about this. The feeling is that rather you know, take it, it seems to work or it seems to offer some protection, then, then not take it. But perhaps I'm going to give you a little bit of experience from a horse's mouth, pardon the pun, because ivermectin is, is, uh, is used in animals predominantly. Uh, my husband is a dermatologist and dermatologists are about the only doctors who use ivermectin in human beings and they use it to deal with scabies. Now, one of his concerns is that you know, ivermectin may or may not be okay, but the real problem is what dose do you give? That is actually the most vital, and he he doesn't believe that the the GPs, the practitioners out there who are who are um, hand, who are giving prescriptions for this or recommending it would know that what dose should be done. Either it's too little, in which case it's doing nothing, or it's too much, in which case it is. Um, well, the, the doctor concerned has found five people have died of liver failure because of it. And my husband had an experience of one woman taking it to, so she could go and visit her grandchildren and she ended up in a coma for a week. And our SAPRA, our medicines approval body, says there just isn't enough data. So there you have it, a latest uh, update on that. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back, and let's go on to an area of agreement. We don't often have agreement in this country at this at the moment, and that is that South African Airways has reached an agreement with its pilots regarding the retention or and or retrenchment of pilots. They've been in dispute for 16 months. They haven't had they haven't had their salaries for that period, and what they have what they have reached agreement on is that. 88 out of 268 pilots will be retained. Their, the remainder will be retrenched at their current wage, which was a huge part of the dispute, which is actually apparently still not as high as they would be entitled to get in terms of, um, in terms of, of the rules and the agreements that exist currently. And what SAA has said is that the agreement meets the need for experience and transformation. Now, make of that what you will. I would however suggest that for SAA, 
to even think of obtaining any money to get it off the ground in current circumstances would cause another round of destruction and looting. But uh, maybe that's just me. But it, it, it would be – perhaps you can go as far to say that it would be somewhat uh, um, obscene. Then just looking at some of the issues that arose from last week, because we're going to discuss it with our guest, is Edgar's. Now, we know Edgar's, the holding company, Edgar, to business rescue not that long ago. Um, it has seen, after trying very hard to get back up running with its new owner, its main distribution center burnt in, in Natal, a thousand retail stores affected, as well as its supply chain infrastructure. Apparently, 50 stores were looted and nine were burnt. Um, I think it might be the first time that government has actually understood what supply chains and infrastructure related thereto and business actually actually means and how how it works. And really it's about learning the lesson that there is no such thing as an industry as an isolated um, entity. It is an industry is always served by people who are not within that industry who provide different products and services. And in any way, the industry of of providing goods in shops and retailing is supported by a whole number of, of functions that most people would not necessarily think about. Um, similarly, um, MTN closes, has closed about more than 100 stores and sell C14 and networks have been affected. So, Frankly, it really is a it, – it's, it's an unimaginable unima- situation. And I think that um, um, just being able to watch people get together and work together is an extremely um, – it's, it's a heartwarming sight in a situation of absolute desperation. Anyway, as, as I, as I uh, go on c- – consider this issue um, – Let's have a look at the Moody's downgrade. Um, five of the metros, the, the big municipalities, have all been downgraded to uh, deep, what they call deep into junk territory. And that includes Joburg, Cape Town, uh, Durban, Port Elizabeth, Rebecca, and uh, I can't remember the fifth one offhand. Um, and there's been complaint that it's, that we've, They've all been lumped together and they've all been downgraded, even though each of them is in very different situations. We're unhappy about the blanket response. Uh, Joburg is not too happy either, as it says its, it's uh, financial situation is, is pretty strong. So one doesn't know whether how, how Moody's went about this, and I'm sure there will be more discussion on it. Um, but I think towards the end of the month, they, the municipalities will get the opportunity to present their, their, their finances again to Moody's and it may have, a, have an effect. But the problem, of course, is that the deeper they get thrown into junk status, the more likely that they are going to have to pay very much more on any amounts that they borrow. Let's see how that goes. Right. Um, now, the interesting thing is Cyril Ramaphosa has had a lot to say um, since this all happened. And last week he gave the most, I don't know, I, I was just appalling, but it was deadly, dull speech about the whole thing. And what was really worrying is that he never 
ever gives a media, sorry, a media conference, not a statement, a media conference when he should be doing so and rather just talks to the nation and then he's off. And what one has to wonder is what is he afraid of? It, it's very interesting that he's not given a single media address because journalists are desperate to ask questions and essentially they ask questions on our behalf. It, it's just a very... It's it's a very strange. I I'm wonder if he isn't absolutely afraid. Um, if if he isn't afraid of being of being faced with this, with the queries, because every month that goes on, the, you can be sure that the questions that will be asked tougher hold him more of his feet more to the fire, if I can put it that way. Um, and I'm not sure that he can give us the answer or would give us the answers that we need. Um, very very uh, very very concerning. Um, it's quite in, it's quite interesting because uh, somebody referred in in a press statement to the fact that Neil Froneman had when he, they took over when Sabania Gold took over the Lonman mines he basically said and this was essentially I guess post uh, Marikana that Lonman's previous management had essentially given up the right to manage. And the question, of course, that we need to ask is, has our government given up the right to manage? Now, in all of this, because everyone did better than the government last week, Cyril has assured us that social grants will show that the government cares. Uh, not so much. I'm not. <laughs> I don't think social grants will show anything. I think people will say it's the very least they expect. But the question, of course, is how the hell are they going to afford to, to pay social grants so honest to god anyway um ifm 101.9 megahertz of life welcome back and apologies if i sounded a, a bit slow and, and distracted i was tr- we were trying to get hold of our of our guest um as often happens sometimes forget and skype isn't turned on etc etc so please bear with us our guest is intended to be our ceo and uh, what do we call our, our dear leader, uh, Dr. Franz Krunier. Um He is the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations. And while we have all been debating at length, it, it, it's, it's been like, a bit like sort of chickens in a coop and all talking at once. He's formulated and he's written a really, really good article in this week's um, uh, Daily Friend Sunday edition, in which there are a number of really, really good articles. In fact, the weekend edition generally covers articles which obviously will almost all cover this issue because it is so huge. And uh, and France is uh, and France is one of them. So let's while we work at uh, getting him online, I'd like to. uh, I'd like to look at uh, <laughs> Jacob Zuma. Um, now, Jacob Zuma made an application to the High Court, I think in Peter Maritzburg, um, to have the prosecutor Billy Downer removed or recused himself from the from the his trial because he feels he would be unfair to him and he would prejudice him. Now the Interesting thing is that is kind of what the prosecutor is meant to be. Is meant to be, um, you know, is not exactly to be a friend of the accused. So another trial, another matter, another application in the Zuma Stalingrad process. So now what he has done is yesterday was the application, 
for on Billy Downer. Then he a- applied yesterday to delay the application into Billy Downer on the basis that he, it being a virtual hearing for him because he would be connected via uh, from his prison cell or hospital or wherever he is. So he would not be in court for his application. So he and his um, he and his uh, Lawyers have decided that you know this is a this is doesn't give him a fair trial. He is ready to give oral evidence. Now the fact is that this wouldn't prevent him from giving oral evidence, but he shouldn't really have to give oral evidence because he's it's an application. Now an application is a sort of intra case process whereby everything is conveyed by way of affidavit but all the par- both parties will will put the facts down on affidavit and re- respond on to that affidavit and then the the um the uh, the applicant gets the oppos- the opportunity to answer again it is very very rare that a judge will actually over and above that call on someone to give oral evidence and zuma is saying he, you know he can't be in the presence of his lawyers etc etc there are ways of dealing with it at a distance. I mean, people give evidence to trials, proper court trials, and to the Zondo Commission remotely. So what makes him special, other than he thinks he's special, I, truth be told, God only knows. So I suppose what the worst thing about this thing by, by Zuma is that it's such a feeling of being insulted by a man who who has compartmentalized that he's done nothing wrong in order to deal with his own psychopathy, and yet we have to put up with it. And worse than that is every time he bleats, we have to pay for it. And that is absolutely and utterly untenable. So I I, I, I really, I, I somewhere, somewhere between here and there and everywhere, I, I do despair. Um. I w- just a very interesting uh, comment from one of our one of our columnists who's generally humorous, and he is uh, Tom Eaton. And he ended the column by saying, "We can yearn for normality, but we must never try to remember whatever quote normal quote m- means." It was serving almost nobody in South Africa, and. I think that about says where we are in South Africa right now. I don't know. Do we ever live in times that are normal? It appears that my guest and my dear leader, um, Franz Cronier, may be online. Franz, are you with us? I, I had an indication that he was and now he isn't. So um, things get <laughs> murkier by the minute. Let me, I'd like to ask the first question. Is there a plot? Is there a coup? Was yeah. that what started things? Yeah, hi, sorry. No, sorry, I'm late for you. I'm totally useless with <laughs> getting on to Skype. Um, Sarah, there's always some level of instigation and planning behind a protest action. Just, just divorce ourselves of this context. If you wish to protest against something, you'll phone your friends, your network, you'll send messages around, you might create a poster. If you get the chance to speak on the radio, you might try and incite the listeners to join your cause. This is very normal. Second thing is that this is not the first time South African communities have protested. 
there is an ingrained institutional memory of large-scale protest action dates back decades in this country. So this is not uh, a community of people, a country that has never been out on the streets before and doesn't know what to do when they're out on the streets, how to face down the police, circumvent the security forces. All of that is, is, is again, perfectly normal and to be expected. Does that mean there was an insurrection here? an attempt to overthrow the government. I don't think that's what it means at all. Uh, and there are a few reasons for that. The first is that Zuma and his circle are heavily surveilled, both by the slightly dozy South African uh, uh, security people and by some private contractors, just to make sure that nothing gets missed by the dozy. And no one flagged this insurrection in advance. And the reason is I don't think that there was anything to flag. The second uh, point is that as we start to tot up the damage that's been caused, that damage is overwhelmingly centered around infrastructure that contained goods that people would value. So bottle stores, clothing stores, electronic stores and the like. Mm -hmm. The kind of infrastructure you need to disable to overthrow a government, the interruption of communications, so cell phones need to go down, the cutting off uh, electricity to sow confusion mm -hmm. and to help communications go down, and cutting off water supply to, to cause socioeconomic distress. There were some elements of it but they weren't overwhelming at all. Mm -hmm. The focus was, you know, typically uh, a warehouse that contained clothes or electronic goods. That's where, that's where the attention was focused. The next point uh, put to me this morning, in fact, by someone who disagreed with me, uh, was that, well, there was a high level of military planning behind the raids. The, 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 and in some places, fire systems were disabled, uh, security perimeters were efficiently breached, uh, the protests moved from center to center to outfox the police. And none of that for me is out of line with what I've said already. And, mm -hmm. and I then said to this person, but for all of that and all this high caliber weaponry you talk of, how many police officers and soldiers were killed in this fighting. And uh, we don't know the answer now, but I don't know if there were any. I think there was so, one. one well, maybe there's one. Yeah. Maybe there's one policeman killed. But but th this, is, this is, I mean, if your communications infrastructure held up, if your security forces didn't suffer losses, significant losses, one terrible, but significant losses, if your electricity wasn't interrupted to Natal throughout this, I mean, that's remarkable. It goes mm -hmm. off when there aren't insurrections. <laughs> Stayed on during the insurrection. It doesn't sound to me as if this was pl planned by masters of state and spycraft who were so wily that they couldn't be detected and that they sought to overthrow the government. I think something else has happened. And what that is, is uh, if you go back um, 20 years, as we're able to do, 
We've seen a lift over the last 10 years in levels of violent anti-government protest, and those levels are now lifting exponentially. We've also seen that the intensity of the protest, by which we mean the violence, has increased very quickly. 10% of protests were violent when Thabo Mbeki was in charge. It's now 30% under, under Cyril Ramaphosa. We've seen that escalation in protests uh, coincide with the decline in support for the ANC, both in elections and, more importantly, what we measure in polls. So as protests rise, political support for the party diminishes. This starts to make sense. But behind all of that, and overwhelmingly, what we see is how when socio-economic circumstances turn for the worse, job creation, income levels, real per capita GDP, confidence in the ANC falls and protests take off. What happened in Natal was this. For 18 months, the lockdown meant that the normal protest action that we see on a day-to-day basis wasn't really able to happen. And people were, in a sense, locked down, literally in their communities. And protests are very important, and violent protests too, destructive but important because they release tension in a society. So that was a, a hard ceiling was put on that. No more protests. At the same time, the lockdown, the consequences devastated the living standards of poor people, uh, uh, exacerbating a decade of, of already bad performance nationally. On then, what happened? Is Sorry, Franz, can I can I hold you there? And because uh, we need to go to an ad break, things got a little jumbled, and ask you to carry on after our after the break. It won't be long. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back. And Franz, you're saying we yeah. the ne- the next thing that happened. If, if, if the next thing that happened is, is Jacob Zuma sent to jail, and I think that was an inflection point, and it saw protests escalate. And I think they did have a Zulu ethnic component to it, which is why the protests sat around Natal, then expanded into the rest of the country and and areas, particularly around hostels in Gauteng. In January of 1930, Mao wrote a letter to his revolutionary comrades who had grown disillusioned with the prospects of revolution in China. And we published the letter this morning as an opinion piece on the Daily Friend, which you must go and read. And at the end of the letter, Mao says to his colleagues, don't be so disheartened. He says, look at the schools, they're rubbish. Kids aren't getting properly educated. He says, look at the economy, it's not growing. Graduates can't find employment. He said, look at the taxes and the rents that are being forced onto people that they struggle to pay. He said, look at the state of the country. He said it's primed for something. And he said one spark is enough to start a prairie fire. And I'm indebted to James Myberg of Brilliant Politics web website, which was going to read, for, for drawing my attention to this mild quote. That's all that, that the Zuma jailing was. It was a spark. There's sparks all, there are always sparks around. This was the spark that landed. 
the thing then took off, got a life of its own, and um, took the government by surprise. And the police are blamed. They didn't see it. That's not because they weren't. The surveillance was wrong. It's because they're not looking at the right stuff. They're not looking at the socioeconomics that create this. And even now they're not doing so. I've had uh, two engagements now with, uh, let's call them our lords and masters who rule this country, and flatly denying that our thesis is correct, telling us these are dangerous revolutionaries and insurrectionists in our midst. These must be arrested criminals, and then the stuff will stop. So I think even now they, they're disputed. And the reason, I think, is this, that the events were very dramatic. They were seen around the world, and in the weeks that follow now, the world in South Africa will settle on an explanation for what happened. Our explanation, or mine at least, is that Cyril Ramaphosa's stagnant reform process and its economic consequences, the economy is not growing, matched with the decisions on the economic lockdown, which were foolish, the economic lockdown, given that we couldn't provide stimulus to businesses that shut down and people mm-hmm. lost their jobs. <coughs> it was a collection of those two elements set the scene for this, which means you've got to pin this on the Ramaphosa administration mm-hmm. and its failed reforms. His very capable media people, the same people and strategists, the same people who convinced you that there would be a new door. Well, not this. <laughs> the same people who told you about the mandate threshold and that you should vote for Cyril. No, you can't vote for Cyril. You can only vote for a party. To make him strong so that he'll introduce reforms. The people who came up with a brilliant slogan of state capture to to um, uh, disable, to, well, that's a different debate, a past political struggle. These people are now trying to convince you that what happened here is that a group of brilliant revolutionaries, uh, masters of this stuff, conspired so secretly that they couldn't be detected, and they took large numbers of people and directed them to destroy certain infrastructure with a view to overthrowing the government and that you must now get behind the government and Cyril so these people can be caught and stand trial and be arrested and jailed so that we negate the risk of this ever happening again. We will see who is arrested when they are. There have been some, I've heard names of others and uh, my uh, a prediction is that when you see them appear in court, you'll think there's no way that this bunch of clowns planned <laughs> to overthrow the government. Drunkards and, and not very clever people and low lives and a, a rabble. Um, who I wrote in a note to clients this week, I think, that none more than themselves, none will be more surprised than they themselves will be to hear that they are the masters of of a coup plan. That wasn't what happened here. But I will tell you this, that I think the kinds of people who would plan coups and insurrections, who would know that if you plan an insurrection, you need to disable the communications infrastructure. I mean, this is basics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even know this. I work mm-hmm. for ThinkTech. I mean, you know, goodness. 
I mean, what are, are we telling the country that the great insurrection has forgot to disable the Tao's communications technology during the revolution? This is nonsense. <laughs> the real sort of people that do plan revolutions will see what happened, and they'll think to themselves, there's a lot of potential here to do this thing properly next time, and to actually collapse the South African government or, or drive it to the brink of collapse. We, we, I mean, Sara knows me well and so on. And, I mean, we occupy the strange world, Sara, where we make calls in advance and mm. the bulk of the community around us is completely mad. So we said Sara's not a reform, that's not going to mm. work. And people said we were crazy. And, and we warned, I, I must stress, on seven occasions in the past 18 months that there would be an eruption of looting and protest action. And I don't think many people that heard that believed it could be true and it happened. So I think we're going ahead now for a real insurrection. Mm. And um, I was on a call this morning with a, one of South Africa's banks on, on this. And I said there are two paradigm shifts ahead. The first is I think South Africa fragments into an enclave, balkanization mm-hmm. of the country. The second is I don't think the ANC is going to stay in power for mm-hmm. the rest of this decade. And if you're well positioned on those two great paradigm shifts, it's a sort of de facto balkanization of South Africa where communities take upon themselves what were once the responsibilities of the state. And at the same time, the ANC loses. I think that strategically, you're very well positioned to anticipate what's coming next. So, in, in, you know, put put more plainly, as we're prone to, you ain't seen nothing yet. And uh, this wasn't the insurrection, but I think we'll we'll see attempts at that before this decade is out. Right. Um, you, you talked about the security cluster being dozy. I, I, I would say probably comatose is probably more likely, more correct. I wanted to ask you, um, Cyril made an impassioned plea for South Africans to work together on Mandela Day um, to deal with the riots, the effects, the loss, etc. And uh, as you know me, I sort of clenched my teeth because the only thing that saved the day that looks like helping anybody were ordinary South Africans and business owners and taxi drivers and the people who make up the part of the economy that largely works. That's, we, do, that, we, we did that. We, now he's calling on us to do that. And I, I thought that was rather, I, I thought, I thought it was rather insulting almost. I don't think it would have occurred to him. There's no problem with South Africans working together. I mean, if, if anything, the looting showed amazing coordination mm. activity. In the same way, the counter looting, the, the groups who protected infrastructure came together very quickly and to great effect. And this is this, none of the surprises us. I mean, we, we know in the polling that South Africans do broadly stand together. Eight out of ten people are pragmatic and, mm. and wish to, to uh, make the world a better place and want to work together. The only group, in fact, in the country that does not work with the people is the government. Yeah. I mean that's yeah. that's and that's the one calling on the people to work together. Um, so no, there's there's no question that South Africa is broadly united by plainly moderate people. Someone said to me, works for the government, a terribly stupid person, and said that um, well, if I'm right on that, then why 
that people take, not just food, if you say they were poor and hungry. And I said, you know, this is the problem with South Africa's government. So utterly detached from reality. If you live in a relatively poor community and poverty is not just about hunger. Poverty is about seeing the people around you also have nice things. Perhaps you work in, I don't know, a retailer and you sell televisions to mm. middle class people. You go home, you can never afford anything like that. And you know, when, when, when the world explodes and people lose their minds and riots break out everywhere, I mean, and, and doubtless there are many that say they, they couldn't, but put yourself in that position. You've, you've never been able to, you know, bring anything nice home for your family and the world blows up, you're fed up with the government. You know, maybe you, 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 you take a television. I mean, that, is that criminal? Yes, it is criminal. Uh, are the people who did it, should they be charged with crimes? I think, of course, they should. But, but the more important question is to ask what happened in a society that saw large numbers, thousands, tens of thousands of people turn to wanton criminality so quickly. Again, you must go back to the socio-economic underpinnings that I think are the basis of this mm. thing. And when you do that, it's, it's, it's pretty horrible. There, there are basically no more people with jobs now than when Thabo Mbeki left the government. Mm. When he left the government, there were twice as many people with jobs than when he started in the government. Real per capita GDP, that's the value of all goods and mm. services produced in the country, divided by the population mm. and just for inflation, is, is falling. People are getting poorer. poorer. The, the, the rate of the rollout of social grants has slowed down. Um, you measure the, many, I could quote things forever at you, but for many South Africans, life has become truly tough, and mm. the lockdown made it a lot worse. When you create those circumstances, then you'll get what Ma warned of. And, and you must decide now in your interpretation of that, what are you going to, what are you going to say caused that? Are you going to say that was caused by, you know, Edward Zuma, Jacob Zuma's son, you know, slightly unsteady on his feet, mm. guarding his father's house <laughs> with a club at the end. I mean, that was what's left of the Zuma administration. <laughs> or, or are you going to say that the reason we're in this position is is because the country is not well governed mm. and the Ramaphosa administration hasn't introduced the requisite reforms. And if you do, before you decide, go back to another incident of great political unrest, 1976. The administrator of Soweto told the Rand Daily Mail in May of 1976 that the people of Soweto were perfectly happy. There mm. was no... It blew up a month later. And thereafter, the Nats went to find the agitators and the scapegoats who had caused this so they could be arrested and brought before the court so that the country could be stabilized. It's that, that same kind of go and look for the agitator that caused this thinking that's coming out of the South African government now, mm -hmm. not what was true then and is true now. That Soweto blew up because the country was fundamentally badly governed, mm -hmm. and its people wouldn't put up with that anymore. Can, can I ask you, just literally the last minute, um, 
we have a situation where basically the media have not served the, op- the opposition parties at all well. Um, the EFF gets a lot of coverage because it uh, behaves like it's insurrectionist, even if it isn't really. And, you, you know, you're talking about the ANC not being in power by the end of the, the, end of the decade. How... Do you think the media is likely to change its tune on the on the on the opposition, or is it? Or are we going to have to look at something completely new? I don't think I don't think see it changing its tune fundamentally. Um, it's one of the problems is that people are put off voting for the DA. Mm. My colleagues, I shouldn't be say that, but I'm going to. Oh, people no. are put off voting. The DA is the best thing going at the moment. Mm. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Mm. Western Cape's not bad generally gets clean audits and economic policies pragmatic. There you go. You're told, or the, the main, mainstream narrative is you mustn't vote for those people because, I don't know, they're racist or elitist or something of that nature. Too too right. The fact is, that's what you've got to vote for now. There's nothing else around that's as, as competent and as capable as they are. It's in a much better shape than it was two years ago when it was trying to sort of replicate the policies of the ANC, which did mean that it was very difficult <laughs> to vote for it. And, and if you tell people, well, you mustn't vote for the alternative because it's not good, then you will dissuade people who are frustrated from finding solutions for their problems in the peaceful order mm. of South Africa's sort of constitutional democratic dispensation. Um, France, I'm sorry, I'm terribly sorry, I'd love to carry this on, but I have to end you there because we've actually run over time in in using the opportunity to make as much much of our time as possible. Um, Perhaps I could get you back sooner rather than later to to, to take this discussion further because particularly the idea of of where do we go from here and who do we go into the future with. But the technical problems notwithstanding, thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, I think you, the, the, the joy of having you on is the people are always going to hear something they didn't expect, if not more than something. No, thank you, Sarah. And they're not your technical problems. They were all mine. And I'm very <laughs> sorry for them. And it's always nice to be here. Cool. Keep well. Cheers.